You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. It used to be common for researchers to study the potential medicinal uses for hallucinogenic drugs, including psilocybin, ecstasy, and LSD. The 60s left a blemish on legitimate research, and it grinded to a halt. Not anymore. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Matthew Johnson, a psychopharmacologist on the faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. His research background includes the use of behavioral and economic theory in the study of drug consumption, self-control, and addiction, and the study of psychoactive drug effects in human participants. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Johnson. Thanks. Great to be here. So tell us about your work with the Hopkins Psilocybin Research Project. Our work with psilocybin really stems from an interest in this class of compounds and their association with spiritual experience. And when you step back and look at the history of use of hallucinogens like psilocybin, they've been used by indigenous cultures virtually universally for mystical or spiritual purposes. And although they became associated with drug abuse as recreational drugs in in the 1960s, there was great interest before that in the 1950s and the 19, really through the 1970s in using these drugs as both tools for neuroscience and also for potential therapeutic effects. So we're actually looking at two aspects. I mentioned before we're using them as tools for studying the spiritual experience, or you could say the neurobiology of spiritual experience. And we're also pursuing the clinical side of things. And we're actually, we've recently initiated a trial looking at the use of psilocybin in cancer patients to see if psilocybin-facilitated spiritual experience can be helpful in uh, helping people overcome existential anxiety and depression. So what have you learned so far? So, so far, we've been studying healthy normals, people without any sort of clinical problem, and we've been studying them in order to investigate just the general effects of these compounds when administered in a highly supportive and prepared context. And what we found, being consistent with the long history of indigenous use of these compounds, is that when properly prepared and when in a safe context, more often than not, these sessions with psilocybin lead to an experience which appears indistinguishable from what's been called the primary mystical experience. And that is an experience that has commonalities across different religious traditions. It's been reported by saints and sages from centuries past up until today. There's certain commonalities such as the sense that all is one, that the universe is ultimately a good place, there's this positive aspect, there's this noetic quality, meaning that one feels that they've had a glimpse of a reality that's larger than everyday reality or sort of more fundamental than everyday reality. Also a sense of transcendence of time and space. So these categories really have been looked at in the psychology of religion and scales have been have been developed in the psychology of religion to study these types of spiritual experiences. Our study represents the first time when such scales have been used to look at a drug-induced experience. And we found that indeed appear to have experiences that are indistinguishable from classic 
primary mystical experiences. And furthermore, when we assess how personally meaningful and spiritually significant these sessions are, we find that most people rank the session to be amongst the top five, some the top one, but most rank the session to be amongst the top five most personally meaningful and spiritually significant events of their lives. And these are highly educated, hallucinogen-naive participants, you know, highly functioning professionals that have, I should say, they've had a life, most of them have had a lifelong, and all of them have a current, but have a lifelong interest in spirituality and spiritual pursuits. What's the mechanism of action for this? Do we know? Well, psilocybin, along with the other classic hallucinogens like, like LSD, that might be the most widely known one, but these agents all have a common mechanism in, in terms of being an agonist at the serotonin 2A receptor. Now, in terms of how causing an effect of the serotonin 2A receptor translates into someone having a profound transcendental experience, that's where the work, more work needs to be done. So we, we know mechanistically how they work, but in terms of the state of consciousness that's produced, a lot of unknowns there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Matthew Johnson. We are discussing the possible clinical utility of psychedelic drugs such as psilocybin. Dr. Johnson, you mentioned earlier the trial you're doing with cancer patients. What other clinical uses might hallucinogenics have? Well, the research from the 1950s to the 1970s found two main therapeutic applications that were most promising, one of which was the treatment of existential anxiety associated with cancer, and the other one of which was the treatment of, of addictions. Um, this was primarily using LSD in the treatment of alcoholism. And this is something that we'd also like to pick up some research and to continue studying. Evidence in both domains is limited. I mean, there was a lot of the state of the science wasn't in psychiatry wasn't what it is today. And so that research really lacked the control groups and experimental rigor that would be expected of modern trials. But the results in both domains were, were suggestive, at least, and worthy of follow-up. And all of that research really ceased, not because of any clinical finding, but more because LSD emerged as a widely popular drug of recreational use, and that really tainted the research that was being done with it, most of which was very legitimate research. I can understand the spirituality piece of cancer. Treating alcoholism, though, I'm not connecting the dots there. What's the theory? How would psilocybin help alcoholics? Well, actually, the group that first stumbled upon this was in Saskatchewan, Canada, and they were, their original hypothesis, this is back in the 1950s, their original hypothesis was that they could mimic delirium tremens, DTs, or the shakes in, that come from alcohol withdrawal by giving LSD, and they thought, well, a lot of people get better after they, they have the DTs, so maybe we can mimic the DTs, and maybe that'll cause something to happen. But what they actually found, instead of having sort of these psychotomimetic effects or disturbing effects that they were shooting for, they found uh, what came to be known as psychedelic effects or transcendental effects. The patients suddenly said, I had the most profound insight about my life, break down in tears. It'd be more like a religious experience, uh, an experience very similar to what Bill Wilson, founder of AA, had, which was apparently spontaneously occurring 
interestingly, Bill Wilson in the 1960s became interested in the use of LSD to provide that spiritual component that is useful in in the 12-step treatment program. However, really at that point wasn't politically correct within the AA framework because they took a very, you know, sort of harsh stance against the use of all drugs, including those under medical, given under medical care. But that's the connection to the fact that an overwhelming experience where one can step back and, in a broad sense, look at what they've done with their lives and perhaps how they've hurt others, what direction their life is going in, and find some sort of redemption from the experience. Now, what about the downside? What about side effects to medicines like psilocybin? Yeah, that's a great question, and we're we're very careful to note that in our studies, we have found that about a third of people on this high dose of psilocybin at, at one point or another during the session will report strong anxiety, fear, a sense of feeling trapped, something like that, something that anecdotally could be called a bad trip. Now, in the context of our research where people are prepared, they know the the clinicians that they're working with, they're in a safe environment where they're not going to be running across the street or something, this is very easily handled. And in fact, afterwards, many people say, well, that sort of difficult psychological experience of fear actually led to the some of the most useful aspects of the session. They really learned something through going through those difficulties. But, you know, certainly one could imagine in an uncontrolled setting, someone could really get into trouble. In fact, I should say it's very, very rare, but there are legitimate cases where people have taken a, a drug like this and have been on a rooftop and thought they could fly or run across a highway got run over, things like that. Again, it's still very rare even with uncontrolled recreational use, but nonetheless, this represents a possibility because these drugs, you know, strongly alter one's sense of the environment and sense of self. It appears to be safe in a a research context, and, um, and this is also, our findings are consistent with older research suggesting that when administered to well-prepared volunteers, the rate of adverse reactions lasting beyond the normal time course of the drug is very, very small. Yeah, it certainly makes sense with my experience. Actually, when I was in school, worked at Rock Medicine, which was the Haight-Ashbury Clinic's outreach to mostly Grateful Dead concerts. And we had a whole tent for bad trips. And it was amazing in that kind of environment. We never had to use Haldol or tranquilizers or restrain people like we did in the ER that, you know, that people dealt with it without any sort of extreme intervention. So uh, what about other side effects like nausea, vomiting you hear with the hallucinogenics? Psilocybin is, uh, I think we had one person that vomited a, a small amount out of the over 100 sessions. So very few people report any nausea at all. So it's not one associated with a lot of nausea. Some people when using, now we, we give the synthetic psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in psilocybin mushrooms, which are the form that are available illicitly. Now, sometimes those can cause nausea if they're, you know, like any other food product, that the mushrooms themselves haven't been stored properly and they get a little moldy or something. I mean, that can lead to nausea. So it's more the mushroom than the psilocybin, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. But not a lot of us, uh, nausea even associated with illicit psilocybin mushrooms. There are other related compounds, for example, mescaline, which is in peyote, 
which is used by the Native American church, that's associated with a significantly more nausea at the beginning of the experience. And there's other drugs like ayahuasca, which is a South American combination of drugs, actually, which is psychoactive and in the same family as these other compounds. And and that's associated with some more nausea. Any resources for our listeners if they'd like to find out more about this? Yeah, absolutely. Our website, you can find out about our cancer study. It's cancer dash insight.org. You can also just find us by Googling uh, Hopkins Cancer Insight and we'll show up and you can find more information about us there. Right. Well, thanks so much for being on our show today. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. We've been discussing hallucinogens with Hopkins psychopharmacologist, Dr. Matthew Johnson. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and downloadable podcasts, visit our website at www.reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.